Ladies and gentlemen, the question may have arisen in your minds concerning the value of such a study as we are about to make together this evening. Can there be any usefulness in considering a subject apparently so remote from the very pressing problems with which humanity is confronted today? And one might doubt also the possibility of making any constructive contribution to a hypothesis for which no demonstrable support whatever can be found. What answer could be given to those rightful and natural questions? First, that by taking a long historical view of human history and human life upon our earth and an explanation of the present difficulties confronting mankind may emerge. An explanation of the divided condition of mankind may be found. And secondly, we may answer that though there may be no demonstrable proof of the existence of Atlantis thousands of years ago, nevertheless, a great deal of scientific evidence exists and much historical support is available for this persistent belief in the existence of the now lost continent of Atlantis and its peoples. Occult science has a great deal to say on the subject and much interesting information to offer, some of which closely harmonizes with the evidence now available. Since, however, the subject is admittedly a matter of speculation, it might be well to begin by a statement, a list of the various evidences which can be found supporting belief in the existence of that continent. The very earliest literary uh, references to Atlantis are to be found in the ancient Hindu scriptures, probably the oldest scriptural literature in the world. And there in what are known as the Puranas, developments out of the Vedas, there much is to be found descriptive of ancient Atlantis. But Greek 
literature has references to the continent as well, and particularly from Plato do we learn in the West, first of all, of the idea. You may remember the story that Plato told, that during a visit to Egypt, his grandfather, the great Athenian lawgiver, Solon, during a visit to Egypt, he was told by an aged priest about the existence of Atlantis, and Solon told the story in his turn to his grandson Plato. According to the story handed on, the people of Atlantis formed the oldest civilization in the world. They possessed great cities with palaces, temples of gold, with huge golden images of their deities, roads of great size and length, chains of canals, and they had a climate which was so benign that they were able to raise two crops every year. They owned ships and war chariots and bred the finest horses. The situation of Atlantis, according to Plato, was in front of the straits called the Pillars of Hercules. And the Pillars of Hercules we know as the Straits of Gibraltar. And the old story says that Atlantis stretched out from there into what is now the Atlantic Ocean and continued in a succession of islands by means of which one might pass right over to the opposite continent. Going on, the old priest of Sais said that there dwelt, now I'm actually reading, there dwelt in Atlantis the fairest and noblest race of men who ever lived, whom you Athenians and your city are but a seed and a remnant, of whom you are but a seed and a remnant. The original Atlantis was preeminent in laws, performed the noblest deeds, and possessed the finest constitution, its antiquity being such that it was founded by the goddess Athene a thousand years before the Egyptian city of Sais. It was a great, story goes on from Plato, it was a great and wonderful empire which had rule over the whole island and several other islands as well as the parts of the continent of Europe. But a mighty power eventually invaded it and endeavored to, in, to subdue uh, Europe and Egypt and the whole land within the Straits, that means within the Mediterranean Sea. But, the story goes on, 
violent earthquakes and floods in a single day and night caused the island and its warlike men to sink beneath the sea. That was the story which Plato told, saying his grandfather received it from this aged priest in science. That is, I think, as far as I know, it is the oldest reference to Atlantis in Western literature. But there is much modern scientific support for this age-old idea. Let me advance some of it. Ocean soundings have revealed the existence in the Atlantic Ocean the existence of the Dolphin Ridge, as it is called. This is a plateau 9,000 feet above the Atlantic Ocean bed, and it extends from near the coast of Ireland right over to the coastline of South America and French Guiana. It's called the Dolphin Ridge because the ship which did the ocean surveys was the dolphin. Then again, dry land fossils have been brought up from the bed of the Atlantic Ocean. Lava from this dolphin-rich plateau, lava brought up by cable-laying vessels, is demonstrably dry land lava, which was erupted less than 15,000 years ago. This kind of a lava is called a vitreous lava, called taclite. It's some of the specimens are now preserved in the museum of the School of Mines in Paris. Such a kind of lava would solidify into such a condition only under atmospheric pressure. If it had been formed under 3,000 meters of water, it would have become crystallized. But it's not crystallized, and so it's they know that it was erupted into the air. And yet it's found on the bed of the Atlantic Ocean. Then Mayan literature, that's the scriptures and fragmentary relics of the literature of the people are called the Mayans of Central America and the northern countries of South America. Mayan literature contains flood and Genesis stories closely resembling those of Greece, Egypt, India, Babylon, and Chaldea, and also, of course, the flood story of Genesis. A most widely spread legend throughout the world. Then, two such Mayan manuscripts are called the Troano Manuscripts and the Book of Chilium Balam. 
I'll refer to them a little more fully later. They're of great interest. Then Egyptian manuscripts discovered by Dr. Henry Schliemann, the famous French archaeologist who intuited the site of ancient Troy and uncovered it. He discovered Egyptian manuscripts which convinced him that Atlantis really existed. One of them records an expedition sent by a pharaoh of about 7000 BC. This expedition was sent out from Egypt to, towards the Atlantic Ocean to try and find the motherland of ancient Egypt. The manuscript reports, however, that the expedition came back without finding anything. Naturally, because as we shall see directly, the great flood which overwhelmed, finally overwhelmed the continent of Atlantis occurred about 10,000 BC. So the remains would have vanished by the time this expedition went. But it is a fact. And one contributory to our study, I think, that Egyptian civilization has no root, no primitive record. It begins with the so-called divine kings who existed before the first known pharaoh, Menes, about 3,000 or more B.C. It has been said that the truly magnificent monuments of Saqqara, Abydos, and Nagade arise with an apparent back, with no apparent background. Undoubtedly they were built by a people with an advanced knowledge of architecture and with a mastery of construction in brick. We have found, says one archaeologist to whom I'm quoting, we have found tombs of the first dynasty, that's the dynasty of Menes, about 3000 BC. We have found tombs of the first dynasty at Saqqara and Helouan, which have stone roofing pillars and wall linings of well-dressed blocks weighing sometimes as much as three tons, handled apparently with ease. The entrance passages to tombs of the later part of the first dynasty were frequently blocked by great portcullis stones, and some of these weighed 15 tons, and they were put into place by a people who have apparently arisen suddenly, full grown, out of an unknown past. Their culture, some of it, I've handled it, looked at it in the museum, the Egyptian museum in Cairo, and it shows evidence of the highest skill in the arts. And behind that, nothing. Nothing to lead up to it. A papyrus discovered, well, there we theosophists add, naturally, because the beginnings of ancient Egypt were in Atlantis. Colonists came from there and founded the very beginnings of the ancient Egyptian empire. 
Then Dr. Sleeman also found a papyrus claimed to have been written by the priest historian Manita much later. That's Ptolemaic times. And he gave 13,900 years ago as the date of the kings of Atlantis in Egypt. There you have a direct written ref uh, reference by the greatest Egyptian historian that has existed, Manito, Ptolemaic times, just about the time of the beginning of the Christian era. We depend upon him largely for our whole chronology of the kings and dynasties of Egypt. And he says that there is a period 13,900 years before his time as the date of kings of Atlantis. Then, when Dr. Sleeman was uncovering the ruins of Troy, he found what he calls an owl vase. And on this vase there was a Phoenician hieroglyphic reading from King Kronos of Atlantis. And strangely enough, this very vase was found duplicated over in South America at Tiahuanaco in South America, showing a close cultural link, you see, between countries now separated by the Atlantic Ocean. Then, of course, pyramids and monoliths and semicircles of stone like the Druid Circle in England. These also are find, found on the island of Bonaco of South America. The step pyramids and the sphinxes of Egypt are all duplicated in the American continent. Then in American Indian languages there are over 100 words that are similar to words of the same meaning in the Arabic and Greek language, languages. And the myths, yes, the myths of Greece, the familiar ancient stories of their mythology, and the myths of the American Indians have some of the same stories, including that of an Atlas, who holds the world on his shoulder. Then a close correspondence exists between the plant life, the flora of the southern USA and that of Europe. Again, the monk seal does not frequent the open ocean. That's why it's so called. It lives in bays. Doesn't go out to sea. So they call it the monk seal. Well, the monk seal is found in the Mediterranean and in the West Indies. Right across the Atlantic Ocean. Certain exactly similar ants are found in the Azores and the Western Atlantic and right over in the USA. Moths and butterflies of the Canary Islands are identical with those of America. 
Now neither the moths and butterflies nor the ants could possibly have crossed the present Atlantic Ocean. The Basque Spanish language has no affinity with other European languages but resembles aboriginal tongues of America in grammatical structure. Then there's that strange phenomenon of the suicidal migrations of certain rodents in Norway. They're called lemmings, you may remember. And they have seasonal western migrations in which they go over field and forest and mountain till they come to the western shore of Scandinavia. Whereupon they all plunge into the ocean and are lost. A mystery. Unless it is, as has been frequently suggested, an instinctual migration to ancient breeding grounds on a country once above the sea in that direction. Cro-Magnon skulls, that's certain very ancient half-million-year-old skulls found in caves in France. Cro-Magnon skulls found in France closely resemble those found in Brazil. But there's a list. Actually, I've given you 19 items. A list of similarities. And they, all of them surely can't be coincidences so that it is reasonable from them alone to assume that there once was a land connection between Europe and Africa across to where the Americas now are. Only such a land bridge would account for all these relationships and similarities. Studying them, one does feel that there's a solid basis for the idea and one can go on to consider it. And we do so in the light of theosophy. What has theosophy to say about the possible existence of Atlantis? Well, it, it advances three fundamental ideas. The first is that it is possible to know the prehistoric past, that there actually exists a memory of nature, wherein is contained a record of everything that ever happened. And in man, moreover, there exists the power to read this memory of nature, a special kind of extrasensory perception about which I've spoken rather fully in earlier lectures. A special kind of what modern science calls extrasensory perception. And by the use of this inward power of positive trained clairvoyance, great seers have been able to look back into the past, not only to Atlantis, but far earlier than that. And it is from them that the knowledge given in theosophy has been attained. What do they find in general? 
They find that racial, human racial evolution on this planet is extremely orderly. And that the order is numerical. The governing number being seven. Thus, seven major races follow each other when man is occupying a planet. On this particular planet, we have lived through five and a half of our seven races. We're in the fifth. Atlantean peoples belong to the fourth. We're members here of the fifth root race. Rather more than halfway through its racial life. A sixth and a seventh race lie ahead of us. And the teaching gives a great panoramic survey of the life of man upon this our globe. For example, evolving through these seven races, he evolves in turn seven senses and acquires five powers of consciousness. The seven senses are hearing, the first sense, developed by the first race, touch, second, sight by the third race, taste, developed more especially by the fourth race to which the Atlantean people belonged, and smell, the fifth sense, now being specialized and sensitized by our own fifth race, which is carrying the other four to ever greater and greater degrees of sensitivity. An orderly progression of races, evolution step by step through them, and the development of sensory power after sensory power. And the levels of consciousness are the physical, we've got power to be aware of physically, the emotional, that of the formal mind, that of the prophetic abstract mind, of intuition and of spiritual will. That's the second great idea. And the third is that evolution on earth is guided. It is not haphazard. There exists and there are in action a number of superhuman beings, sometimes called an occult hierarchy, which guides and directs but never forces this orderly evolution of mankind, age by age, race by race, power by power, sense by sense. And we will go on to add to our five senses Two more, which will be clairvoyance and clairaudience. The revelation, of course, is far more detailed than that, and I would recommend our literature to those interested. What do they say concerning the geographical position on our earth of this ancient continent? Where was Atlantis? Well, 
the position and the extent of the Atlantean Empire varied naturally through the four million years of its history. And those variations were caused by four great convulsions of nature, mighty cataclysms, chiefly characterized by all-embracing floods. Up to about a million years ago, or rather later than that, up to 850,000 years ago, here was the position of Atlantis. It extended from a few degrees east of Iceland to about the site now occupied by Rio de Janeiro. It embraced the whole of present Texas, the Gulf of Mexico, the southern and eastern states of America. Further north, it took in Labrador and all the area from there to Iceland and Scotland, and it included a small portion of the north of England. And from there, in the eastern side, it stretched right over the Atlantic Ocean to Brazil. To Brazil and across from there to the African Gold Coast. So you see, it very nearly filled the present Atlantic Basin. Then, about 850,000 years ago, there was, as I said, a terrible convulsion of nature, a great catastrophe, a flood. This happened in the Pliocene age, which is said to have existed about one million years ago, and in which we still are. The wonderful account maps which are available showing these changes and distributions of land and sea show that much of the north of the continent of Atlantis was submerged and the rest of it was rent by this first of the four floods. Then there came a second flood about 200,000 years ago when the continent was much changed, though this was a far lesser catastrophe. Atlantis proper, the, the great continent, was split into two islands, a northern which was called Ruta. Ruta, that's the name of the northern continent which you find in the Puranas, to which I referred at the beginning. The northern island, Ruta, and the southern island, Daitya, D-A-I-T-Y-A, Daitya. The future North and South America were separated from each other. Egypt was submerged. The Scandinavian island, including the British Isles, was joined to the future Europe. And the Gobi Desert was a vast like the Sahara. Then came the third flood. Another 
stupendous planetary convulsion occurs in 75,025 BC. As a result of this flood, the southern island, Daicha, almost entirely disappeared. Rutao was reduced to the comparatively small island which we read of as Poseidonis. And it was seated, situated about the center of the Atlantic Ocean. The other, at that time, the other land surfaces were roughly as they are today. British Isles, I'm looking at the map as I talk to you. The British Isles are still joined to Europe. The Baltic Sea was non-existent and the Sahara Desert and the Gobi Desert, as we now call them, are still great seas. Then came the last cataclysm, the last flood, 9,500 B.C. Then Poseidonis was finally submerged, and that was the end of the great Atlantean continent and that particular home of the Atlantean people. Then I've mentioned that in the Mayan Troana manuscript of 2,500 years ago, and the Book of Chilean Balaam, definite references are made to that flood. Plato refers to it when he wrote about 500 BC, and the Hindu Puranas give a fairly good account of it. So we may take it, I think, from all these sources that the occult teaching is indeed founded upon facts. Now the people, so much for the country, I have to treat it quickly and rather lightly. You can turn to our literature if you want to fill it out. Now the people, well as I said they belong to the fourth root race. They have now produced all of the seven sub-races. For each of these major races of which I spoke produces seven daughter races, which we call sub-races, and from them the various nations of the world develop. Well, the Atlantean, four of the seven races, has produced its, all of its seven sub-races. We have We're Aryans. We belong to the fifth root race. We've only produced five sub-races, though the sixth is said just even now to be, to be being born. And all the troubles of the world today can from this point of view be regarded as the birth bank of a new racial type, a new outlook on life, and also, of course, the death throes of an old civilization. The masses of the Atlanteans were concerned with the development of the sense of taste and the power of emotion. emotion. 
They had very little intellectual capacity as we know it today. They could memorize, but they couldn't reason by logic. Though the very advanced among them were developing the reasoning mind, logical, self-initiated thought. But even today their remnants imitate better than they initiate. They were good copiers, really, rather than inventors. So what was life like in ancient Atlantis? Well, considering it existed for four million years, of course, no one description will cover the whole. The variations were immense. But let us look in on them at one of their great, perhaps their greatest epoch. Remember, they still exist today. In fact, they still preponderate numerically. All the Mongolians, for example, all the American Indians, the Laplanders and the Eskimos, all of these are relics of the Atlanteans, and they are still greater in number than ourselves. But they've passed through many evolutionary epochs. We look in on one, sometimes called the Great Toltec Golden Age. For about a million years ago, under adept guidance, there was produced in Atlantis a perfect civilization. And it said that all of us, as human egos, passed through it, probably many times, to receive the impress of the ideal civilization. And many of the experiments and efforts of today are upsurging from our own instinctual memory of that past. I don't know whether that sounds strange to you, but we have to remember, you know, that the Atlanteans weren't somebody else. We are the reborn Atlanteans. There's only one family of egos, spiritual beings, evolving on this planet. That is ourselves. We were the first, second, third, fourth, and now are the fifth of the great major races. We can say that in general, though there are some particulars in which we differ. So it's ourselves, you see. We're the product of our own remote past. Same people, the same spiritual being, the same family to which we all belong. Our egos who are evolving upon this planet. And we all had this wonderful experience of incarnation in a golden age of a perfect society, which we could not have produced ourselves, but our seniors in evolution helped us to do so. 
For example, great advances were made in horticulture. Cereals and food-bearing trees were developed from wild to highly cultivated states. And in fact, we owe many of our food, plant foods, notably cereals and fruits, from the horticultural experiments and achievements of the ancient Toltec people. They were great gardeners and great farmers. They also had some mechanical power. They had engines. They would be regarded as tremendously heavy and very clumsy by our standards because, uh, but they worked. And they worked because, here's another interesting point. The ancient occult records say that these people were granted some knowledge of an etheric energy. Whether it was what we know today as atomic energy seems doubtful. There are many other forces in nature, almost infinite in their potency and their supply. So it didn't matter that the engines were very heavy. They worked because there was no shortage of power. They had airplanes, airships, of which you can read from our literature. They fought against other airships using this same force to upset the equilibrium of the enemy's vessels and they even discharged poison gases from the air upon hostile nations. They reached great heights in architecture and one of their most wonderful cities cities. No, I think I ought to say their most wonderful city was the capital of the empire for tens of thousands of years. It was called the City of the Golden Gates. Sometimes it's referred to as the City of the Waters. Let me read to you a little about it. It's tremendously interesting. You can see <coughs> why it's called the City of the Waters as well. It lay on the east coast, about 13 degrees north of the equator, and was surrounded by wooded park-like country, scattered over which were the residences of the wealthier classes. To the west lay a range of mountains, from which was drawn the water supply. And the city was built on the slopes of a hill, about 500 feet above the plain. At the summit of the hill lay the emperor's palace and garden, in the center of which welled up a stream of water, supplying the palace and the fountains of the garden, and then flowing down to the next level in four directions, in cascades, into a canal, which surrounded the next terrace with houses. There were four of these, after which the water uh, flowed down into the ocean. The city of the Golden Gates was about 12 miles by 10 miles in area. 
then in religion they had a great deal of sun worship. They didn't worship the physical orb, but they saw in it a, a, a manifestation and a representation of the infinite and divine source of all life and light and energy. They argued, or they were probably taught, that just as the sun makes life possible by its perpetual shining or outpouring of energy, so God, or the deity, makes life possible, spiritually as well, by a perpetual outpouring of His divine life. And if you go amongst the North American Indians, as I have done, you find relics of this belief there. They were very closely in touch with the forces of nature, they could control them to a considerable extent and, for example, could make rain. I myself have seen this done by their descendants, who are the red men of America. From a, in the midst of a drought, with no meteorological prophecies of rain, and out of what? just before was a brazen sky and a certain village on the desert, in the desert of New Mexico, a great rain dance was held. There had been a fortnight of secret preparations, and then for six hours the whole village maintained a traditional dancing and singing invocation to rain and fertility. And I remember saying to my friends as we drove there from Santa Fe that it will indeed be a miracle if it rains today. It rains every year after this dance, they said, you will see. And it did rain. For the time of the end of the dance, 6 p.m., we drove home in a tropical downpour. In fact, we only just got over some of the big creeks. Well, now that's a relic of one aspect of the Atlantean religion. Though, of course, there was also that which we call the religion of the past, which our Lord called passage through the straight gate, an entry upon the narrow way which leads to life eternal. That was instituted in ancient Atlantis. And the great adepts even then were drawing the more ardent aspirants to the spiritual life nearer to themselves, teaching them, training them, helping them in great ceremonial enactments of nature's processes, quickening their inner evolution, stimulating sensory development, and so on, just as has been going on in what is called the mystery tradition, with its occult schools scattered over the world, mostly secret, right down to today. So when we look at the Atlantean religion, we may well remember that many of the great adepts of later days and of today began their training and speeded evolution at that time. This was an important part of the work of ancient Atlantis. I ought to have left more time for politics. 
I can only just say that society was completely communal. Not so much communistic, particularly with the undesirable foreign attributes which have been foisted onto a certain political ideal. But their motto was, from each according to his capacity, to each according to his need. And under that, and of course under adept guidance, a perfect society existed for a hundred thousand years. And we all of us had at least one incarnation therein. There was practically no crime, the great and dreaded punishment, whenever needed, being banishment to the outer barbarian colonies. Yes, they were great colonies, sailors and merchants. They sailed the seas and colonized the world. But they fell into very grave malpractices. This, this very psychic power, contact with elemental forces, was a temptation to certain of them. And so, some of the more evil forms of necromancy, sorcery, dabbling with the deceased, unlawful contact with the dead, with nature's elemental forces, with the powers, the grosser powers in man, and the terrible black magical era came up time after time in Atlantis and only swept away, swept off the face of the earth by these great and terrible floods. Such in outline only, admittedly, such is a glimpse of one part of ancient Atlantis, where you and I live, together too, as part of the great human family on this our earth. For we are one humanity, one family, and brotherhood is the great fact, underlying our existence in all the races here on earth. We are moving on, all of us, together, to a higher and higher evolutionary condition. We should evolve through our present. Dividedness, egotism, selfishness, brutality and crime. In fact, Men and women are already appearing in the world who obviously have evolved far beyond them. And thus such a survey as this has its value. We get a panoramic view of human history. We see the place of its various phenomena and of our troubles and difficulties of today. And we become inspired by the knowledge that humanity will never be wiped out from this planet. Atomic energy and hydrogen bombs will not be allowed to interfere with this great evolutionary, irresistible onward march. For the theosophists know that mankind moves onward through innumerable ages to ever-increasing 
increasing power and wisdom and glory. Mr. Jeffrey Hodson now answers some questions put to him at this meeting. The races develop the senses one by one through the races. How is it that the insects and animals can see, taste and smell? Because we all are, at our different levels, evolving in parallel. And as far as some of our bodily capacities are concerned, we are evolving together. And they enter into the same phases and develop the same powers as does man. In our literature you will find that more fully explained and how the present mammalia, for example, are really intimately related to man himself. Were there flowing waters in the hanging gardens of Babylon? Yes, but of course the term hanging gardens is rather deceptive. There are hanging gardens in India too. They're not hanging as it were in the air. Not a very good word. They're terrace gardens, that's all. Terraces rising one above the other though through the trailing vines and roses cellar flowers flowed as it were over down the vertical sides of the terraces but they were on flat ground. Yes, heavily watered but I think not quite in the same way as was the case in Atlantis. There were four successive great canals practically square surrounding the city at the four levels. At the top was the emperor's home, below that were the more wealthy homes of the more wealthy classes, and so on down, till you came to nearly to the sea level. And each level had its widening system of canals. The water was drawn from the mountains and flowed down the moor. So it was called the city of the waters. Now, Babylon was not like that. Is it possible that the story of Noah has a deep esoteric meaning? Ah, yes. It's not only possible, but it is so. You remember how last Sunday I was saying that the writers, the inspired authors of certain of the episodes in the scriptures of the world deliberately used history and historical events as a kind of western warp on which to weave an account, a revelation of truths which were not historical at all not temporal, but were everlasting principles, basic facts, always in existence whenever there is objective light. They also wanted to describe states of consciousness, human consciousness, and they did so in this, like in these parables and allegories and myths 
using the language of symbols, as I said, for the purpose. For example, there was a flood. Certain Atlanteans, in fact there were four floods, certain Atlanteans were saved by divine or adept direction. They were carefully chosen Atlanteans. They had in them the qualities dawning of our fifth root race. They were therefore chosen to be the parents of the new bodies and racial types. They were withdrawn, saved from the flood, segregated from the rest of the world, first of all in Arabia, and then later in Central Asia, on the shores of what was then the Gobaisi, as I said. There, through, through hundreds of thousands of years, somewhat segregated, they developed. And eventually went out on great emigration to populate the world, repopulate the world, and found our Aryan race. We belong, we're their descendants. So you see, there's a pseudo-historical basis. True, there were plants. True, there was a divinely selected group of people. True, certain desired forms of life were preserved. Not in an ark, but occultly by migration and carrying to a part of the world which wasn't planted. Now, that principle of the preservation of life and the seeds of living things between one dispensation and the next, one world period and the next, is also is told in the flood legend. There is a great official, a mighty being, personified by Noah, whose duty it is at the end of a world period to withdraw from the planet, the superphysical world, the seeds of living things and the monads of them, and enclose them all in his vast aura which can contain them. Then the earth goes into quietude, rest, obscuration of a kind. Life sinks down to a minimum. The planet almost sleeps. But all the light all the seeds of living beings and things are preserved in the aura of this great one. Then, either to another planet, or when the time is right, back onto this one. He re-delivers them, so that the tide of evolutionary progress may continue for them at the point left off in the preceding cycle when it closed. Now that would be a difficult thing to put before primitive people. So abstract, and so a fable, a story was made. Which is true. A man, Noah, is divinely inspired, he's told to build an ark, he's told to build, to, to draw into it, men and women and pairs of animals. So that when the floods subside, they can take up life again, populate the earth. It's true in a way. Then similarly, it's perfectly true of you and me. 
We have spiritual selves and beings in our body of life called the causal body. We preserve that. Every faculty which we ever develop, nothing is ever lost. Then when the end of physical life comes, the body is laid aside, we're free from it, as I've said in earlier lectures. The life is drawn to a close with all its variety of experience and the fruits thereof. Capacity, understanding, power, wisdom, knowledge, faculty, rested from life. All of that is saved, drawn up by the spiritual ego into the causal body and that's stored, kept as it were, like seeds in a granary, till the next season will open. The planting will begin. So, the ego, represented by Noah, preserves in the causal body, of which the ark is a universal symbol, preserves all harvesting. And then, when a new life is going to begin for you and for me, and all of us here on earth, we have all available the faculties we've developed in former lives. We carry some of them further, we add to them new ones, for life is a process of gradual evolution. So, the ego in the causal body symbolized by Noah's desire, which also represents the great spiritual intelligence who preserves all life between planetary incarnations. So yes, as your question suggests, the story of Noah has its deep, you put it, esoteric meaning. That's part of it. Was the energy used by the Atlanteans to drive their airships to be compared in any way to our jet engines? Yes, very closely. Very closely indeed. Let me lead, read to you a little account of those airships. In fact, I'll read you a description of one of them. And you'll see how closely it resembles jet propulsion. Amazingly so. So much so that I took this description, written 40 or 50 years ago, long before jet propulsion came, and talked it all over with uh, a member of the New Zealand government high up in aeronautics. We went over it all together. And he said, yes, the principle is the same. Let me read it to you. The earlier ships were built of very thin wood, strengthened by the injection of some substance which did not add materially to the weight, but greatly increased the toughness. My friend said, ah, that's like duralumin, which is lighter and tougher than aluminium. Duralumin. He said it might have been something like that. Later they used an alloy of two white metals and one red one, producing a white metal like aluminium, but even lighter in weight. There, my friend said, that, that looks a little like our modern duralumin. 
This metal was beaten into shape over the framework and welded where necessary, producing a seamless and perfectly smooth surface which shone in the dark as though coated with a luminous paint. The ships were shaped like boats, decked in with propelling and steering gear at each end. 